This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 10th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The killing of Tyree Nichols is exceptional. In a way, few defended the actions of the officers who killed him. And after the video quickly surfaced, the perpetrators were quickly charged. And yet creating a culture where this kind of brutality simply doesn't occur with such great regularity will require a heavier lift. Cato's Jay Schweikert says that will mean ending qualified immunity. This case seems rare in a sense. Uh, we have cases of police brutality, uh, pol- egregious misconduct on the part of police. One, this was a specific unit and not just a bunch of cops who happened to be together at one place at one time. Uh, two, the video was released fairly quickly. And three, these no, almost no one defended these police officers and their activities, and they were charged fairly quickly. Uh, and I think some people thought, well, that's that's good. Uh, but it still highlights a substantial problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I think I like that framing that there's there's a way in which this incident is exceptional. Um, and it it highlights and illustrates some very important problems with our current policing system. But it's also um, you know, maybe not representative of the sort of ordinary problems that we face uh, in terms of police accountability. Um, I mean, I think it is, you know, an especially shocking and egregious degree of unjustified violence. I think anyone who has actually, you know, brought themselves to watch the harrowing video, um, you know, comes to that conclusion. Um, but I think that in terms of, and you're right, I mean, in terms of response, um, you know, we did get the video fairly quickly. Um, there has been pretty swift action in terms of criminal prosecution. Um, and that's, you know, good in a sense, but accountability doesn't just mean, can we ensure justice for the people who commit committed this particular act of violence? It's how do we inculcate a culture of accountability, of predictable accountability, such that these kinds of events don't occur uh, in the first place. Yeah, in a different context, in the context of our, our criminal justice system, everyday defendants going to court and receiving sort of outrageous sentences, uh, you know, where the focus has been is, well, how do we get these people out of prison sooner? And of course, that <laughs> what you're talking about in, the, in in this context is, no, 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 no. This is a horrible consequence of a bad system. This is a horrible consequence of a system where uh, these sentences are not rational. And in the context of policing, it's, well, how do we prevent this kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And you just, you know, you don't get this kind of violence, this kind of reckless disregard for traditional, I mean, not even just not even just constitutional rights, but for basic norms of policing unless you have a system where officers just simply don't be, expect to be held accountable on an ordinary basis. Um, when Clark and I were talking about this last week, he used the terms, um, you know, the broken windows theory of policing, which I actually think, you know, is, makes sense. Like if you have a system where police can routinely get away with more, you know, let's say ordinary constitutional violations, stopping people without reasonable suspicion or making unlawful uh, arrests or unlawful searches, you know, that affects the culture, that affects their expectations. And that's how you get this kind of um, egregious, shocking example of rights violations. Um, and so, 
you know, certainly it appears that criminal prosecution is warranted here. Obviously, you know, we'll see what comes out of that. I'm not going to, you know, prejudge that, but that seems warranted. But, you know, frankly, most of the time, I mean, criminal prosecution is a blunt tool. Um, it's an extraordinary remedy, and it is has an important part to play in police accountability. But it probably isn't the appropriate response for every instance of police misconduct in terms of rights violations. And that's exactly why, of course, we need a robust civil remedy that allows for more measured, proportionate responses and puts the initiative on the victims of misconduct to decide whether or not they want to bring legal action. Yeah, and you can imagine a police chief uh, in a world in which, for example, qualified immunity does not exist or uh, criminal prosecution just seems more likely in almost all, all of these cases of substantial or clear-cut violations of rights, you can imagine a police chief saying, well, how do we get out in front of this? Yeah. And, and I think that it's, you know, I, I think that it's challenging. Um, you know, obviously, I think there are, you know, police departments can take their own initiative. And, you know, I don't mean to sort of dismiss the idea of, you know, internal discipline and sort of, you know, training and hiring and retention practices that can address this. Um, but I think, you know, in my view, that works in tandem with a robust civil remedy, right? A robust, predictable civil remedy is what gives every department the correct incentives um, to, you know, get out in front of that, so to speak, and what gives individual officers the incentives to take that seriously as well. Um, and, you know, and I think one direction where this, now that we're kind of getting past the initial shock of this tragedy and sort of talking about particular, um, you know, possible reforms, we're kind of coming back to the same issue that was that was being debated, um, you know, two years ago about the relative importance of individual liability for officers versus um, vicarious liability for for police departments. And, um, you know, some folks even, you know, uh, you know, people who broadly agree that qualified immunity is a problem have started suggesting, well, you know, let's just kind of sidestep this issue by making departments themselves directly liable and not worry about the individual officers. And in a way, that seems like kind of a tempting sounding solution because it sort of would seem to avoid the political controversy of, of you know, of letting individual officers be sued, which, of course, they currently can be. But the problem is that by putting it entirely on police departments, which in, in a sense means entirely on taxpayers, you may be able to compensate victims. You know, I mean, you may ensure that there's a, a remedy in, in case of violation, but you're not providing that upfront individualized deterrence that civil rights laws are meant to provide. And so you don't really do as much to prevent these kinds of offenses from happening in the first place, which is really the ultimate goal. Yeah, you don't necessarily uh, encourage that cultural shift. Exactly. So uh, when we talk about uh, qualified immunity, some states and uh, localities have gotten rid of it. Um, do, do we have any evidence so far of what that has meant in those jurisdictions? I, I mean, I think it's important to maintain, you know, a certain degree of, you know, uh, social science humility and trying to draw extremely broad conclusions um, in a very short period of time on a very complex social problem like this. Um, but uh, what we do know, I mean, certainly what we know for sure is that uh, the sort of hyperbolic doomsday predictions about what would happen if you got rid of qualified immunity have not come to pass in Colorado and New Mexico and New York City, 
um, the jurisdictions that have essentially enacted state-level qualified immunity reform. Um, there have not been declines in police retention out of step with like national trends. And, and in fact, my understanding is that Colorado in particular has um, done better than national trends in terms of overall you know, retention questions. Um, there have been uh, a, I, I know at least in Colorado, there have been a relatively small handful um, of cases brought under the new Colorado civil rights law. Um, most of those have, uh, you know, a lot of those have still been working their way through court. So it's soon, it's a little soon to say exactly, you know, what's going to happen in those in typical cases. But what we have not seen is the so-called flood of frivolous litigation that opponents of qualified immunity reform have also predicted. Um, you know, so again, I, I, you know, I don't want to come out here and say, well, we definitely know that it's, everything is better in those jurisdictions precisely because of these laws, but we do know that the doomsday predictions have not come to pass. And so my hope, and you know, this may be naive, but my hope is we can have a slightly more rational discourse around this question, um, you know, in this sort of, I guess this sort of next cycle of both potential federal and state level reforms where, um, you know, we can acknowledge what evidence we have uh, and that it, you know, it the it just does not bear out the concrete predictions that opponents of uh, qualified immunity reform have been making. Uh, the issue, at least at the federal level, has been a major sticking point for criminal justice reform. Is there any evidence that that is uh, cooling? Uh, is 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 or do you have any hopes that uh, the uh, discussions about qualified immunity being included in some sort of reform package will continue. I think it will be a challenge. Um, I, 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 do, I mean, I do have hope. I think that, um, you know, even, uh, already, I mean, Lindsey Graham, who, who, you know, uh, you know, was a pretty vociferous opponent of, you know, the justice and policing act passing in the Senate, um, in 2021 has, you know, acknowledge the problem here. He, he he has been sort of one of the proponents of, I mean, in, in just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he took to Twitter saying, well, you know, I don't want to have individual officers sued, but police departments should be vicariously liable. You know, and as we were discussing, I don't think that's the ideal solution, but it shows that he's at least talking about potential reforms. And so hopefully that sort of gets some momentum going for a conversation. Um, I, I mean, honestly, I mean, one thing that gives me some hope is that I think you know, in, in the in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder um, in sort of the summer of 2020, there really was this kind of moment where there was broad, you know, bipartisan agreement that there was something wrong with how qualified immunity was working. And there were, you know, disagreements on maybe what the right approach was, but it really wasn't that controversial to say that there was a problem with this doctrine. And that, of course, is the point in time where we had Republican Senator Mike Braun introduce a bill in the Senate that would have essentially eliminated QI in its current form and replaced it with, you know, a very narrow set of safe harbor alternatives. What I think happened, though, is that this narrative about, or the, you know, the policy question of qualified immunity reform and police reform in general got wrapped up with this much broader culture war narrative about, you know, defund the police versus back the blue. And in the aftermath of the 2020 election, I think that the, the issue just was so hot because it really was no longer a question of, do you support this kind of qualified immunity reform? It was which side's giant narrative of everything do you agree with? You know, and so it just kind of became impossible to like turn down the temperature. And so what I'm hoping is that we've gotten a little bit of distance from that. Um, you know, and frankly, you know, and this is, I mean, <laughs> one thing that makes it a little bit more complicated here is that, you know, 
you know, obviously Tyree Nichols was, you know, a black man who was killed by police officers. You know, the five officers immediately involved were also black. And so it makes it a little bit less of a easy fit for a kind of racially charged narrative, um, which I think, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, not sort of, I mean, our take is that those narratives, whether or not they're true, are often a little bit sort of distracting from what underlying structural changes can actually make the system better for everyone. So it may be possible that like the fact that there's not this sort of extreme, obvious racial aspect to this particular crime could make it turn turn down the temperature a little bit. You know, I think it's hard to say. And, you know, of course, we do have a Republican House right now, which, you know, given the current landscape of these proposals makes it challenging. Um, But I hope that there can at least be, you know, progress in terms of rational dis- discourse about this at the federal level, introduce some proposals to get past where we currently have drawn the lines, you know, and even if something isn't passed in this Congress, you know, it generates a little bit more momentum going forward. And hopefully, you know, what seems more likely is getting more state level reforms um, so that we continue getting evidence about what happens at the state level when you do this to, you know, again, push back against these hyperbolic predictions of disaster. I spoke with Chris Kemet of the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund a while back, and he had a a case of a young woman who had been strip searched by school, public school officials. And uh, I just just think it's important that uh, we stress that the violations of rights that can exist on the part of agents of the state uh, can occur outside of policing as well, and that qualified immunity is potentially a bigger discussion than just police. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, obviously this issue has kind of come to national prominence because of high profile instances of, of police misconduct, but it applies, you know, to corrections officers, it applies to education officials. That comes up in the context of cases like you mentioned with sort of strip searches or other sort of Fourth Amendment violations. Of course, it also comes up in the context of higher education in terms of free speech or um, free exercise questions where, you know, school officials are alleged to have discriminated against very often, uh, you know, political or religious conservatives, Um, you know. And so those are the kinds of qualified immunity cases that speak a lot more to Republicans. And so in a sense, I mean, again, this may be sort of naive of me, but like in a way, you know, obviously the best policy here is to get rid of qualified immunity across the board. But in a way that even though that's a broader proposal, it may actually be more politically palatable because it brings in a broader set of, uh, you know, agents of the state that get outside of this one particular context. Because as much as the law enforcement lobby often makes a lot of pretty extreme misstatements about qualified immunity, the one reasonable argument that they make quite a bit is, hey, if qualified immunity is so bad, why are you only trying to take it away from us? Why not get rid of it across the board? You know, to which I and other sort of actual civil rights advocates say, you know, your terms are acceptable. You know, that sounds great. Um, and so if that's the direction that the conversation goes, um, you know, I would be thrilled to see, you know, sort of principled Republicans in Congress say, hey, you know what? This is a problem, but it's not right to pick on police officers. It applies across the board. So let's have that broader discussion. That would be great. Jay Schweikert is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.